This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me today is Ajay Singh Chaudhary, the Executive Director of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, to discuss his recently published book, The Exhausted of the Earth, Politics in a Burning World. Dr. Chaudhary, welcome to the program. Uh, David, thanks for having me. Uh, you're most welcome. Dr. Chaudhary's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, Dr. Chaudhary argues the climate crisis, i.e. the Anthropocene era, is the political product of right-wing climate realism, what he terms alternatively Rex, the Rex Tillerman position, which, which we'll get <laughs> Rex into. Tillerson, Tillerson. Tillerson, excuse me. Um, excuse me. The politics of functional climate denialism, or where business as usual can mitigate global warming, has resulted in economic, ecological, and social disrepair, detachment, and exhaustion, or in some socio-ecological yes. exhaustion. What capitalism has built, he argues, is an exhausted world. Any workable solution or any effort to create a sustainable environment niche requires a new climate realism. Real eco-modernism, he argues, must be in some grounded in decolonization. With me again to discuss the exhausted of the earth, politics of a burning world, is again the author, Dr. Chaudhary. For listeners new to this podcast, I'll note I've conducted well over 30 climate-related interviews over the past seven years. So that is a, a very uh, brief intro. I want to leave as much time as I can for your comments. Mm -hmm. I often find it useful, particularly possibly here, to ask, uh, why did you write the book or what did you intend to accomplish? Oh, that's a fascinating question. Um, I can say that, um, and first of all, thank you for the introduction and the, sorry, um, and there's plenty in there to talk about. Um, what made me want to write this book is is two things. Uh, one, I have long had an interest in, um, well, actually long had an interest, frankly, in climate stuff. Uh, one of the funny stories I, I write about at the beginning of the book is that my mother, when I was finishing this one, uh, sent me like a clipping of something I had I'd written when I was like eight years old on like climate and energy stuff, like, you know, in the 80s. Um, and like, Part of me, uh, so part of this is like something that's always been in the back of my mind. Um, when I was doing my formal academic work, which is a long time ago now, like a you know, long time ago, um, I was working on uh, politics and religion, uh, in particular different forms of sort of uh, radical Marxisms that were heterodox, that were not the sort of mainstream, that sort of popped up in different parts of the world, particularly I looked at some in the Middle East and some in um Germany, which we all think of as a sort of critical theory. And it, ironically, I just told the story to someone else uh, this morning. Um, you know, my first major project, which is your dissertation, right? Um, uh, for me, I have three, right? I have my dissertation, then the school we built, and then this. Um, so my first major project was a book about politics and religion, which ended up with a long discussion of science. And my second is sort of a return to home, um, which is a book on politics and science um, that 
actually it does have some actually elements of, of religion and other things in it, but is in fact about the ways in which what we are learning about the uh, world through the climate sciences, right, um, really reshapes also how we have to understand society and politics. So we can't just simply uh, add on climate as like an issue category, the way I think a lot of folks, especially in liberal democratic countries are used to, right? Like, oh, that's like my transportation issue. Oh, that's my that's my healthcare issue. That's my or policy. That's my um, whatever. Yeah. Any of these th- urban development, right? Any, any number of things. In fact, it touches on all of these things and it dictates timelines, groupings that just weren't anticipated. So we really desperately need this new uh, sort of soup to nuts, who, what, where, why, how of uh, a politics of climate change. Well, thank you for that, and I think uh, I, I think you got close, if not there, with with the work. So let, let's go into the substance okay. here. Um, so Rex Tillerson. So we remember Rex Tillerson uh, from the Trump administration, and I'm assuming and this from, is uh, Exxon, <laughs> right? Exactly, the former CEO. I, I'm assuming you you retitled right wing climate realism Rex Tillerson is somewhat of a sarcasm. Um, it's a bit of a joke, yes. right? Correct. Uh, yes. So, but let's let's what. So this is a big question, and you spend many pages on this, but can you summarize, how do we understand right-wing climate realism, that, again, yeah, Tillerson's position? You. This is a wonderful place to, uh, to think about. Um, so I think very often when we talk about um, climate change, again, I'm thinking particularly here, uh, I think your listeners would be very familiar with this, like the kinds of stuff you might read in the newspaper or hear discussed in political debates on television or on the radio, um, often is framed around sort of, well, we're going to do something or we're going to do nothing, right? Um, there is a a climate policy that is based on believing, right, the science as it goes, right, et cetera, et cetera, and one that is just fully out to lunch and full of denialism and craziness. And one of the reasons I bring right-wing climate realism into here um, is a actual outright, like even though people like Donald Trump actually um, are like, as far as I know, I don't know the guy personally, you know, true, as far as I can tell, climate skeptics, like in the classic sense, they don't really believe in it or whatever. Um, That position popularly has like fallen off a cliff. So even in the United States, which was the chief home of denialism for a long time, very few people still believe in absolute denialism. What you get instead are, well, in those polls and stuff, what you get instead are sort of different degrees of positions about what might be done, um, different understandings of, of importance and things like that. There's a lot to dig in. I do that in the book. But more importantly, um, when we think about right-wing politics, especially at the like formal level, right? Um, I, again, I still I think we often trap this conversation in a like ah the right are kind of a bunch of dummies. They don't believe in this stuff. They can't read the papers. They don't believe in in they don't trust any natural scientific research. They don't even have a healthy like critical relationship with it or whatever. And to my mind, that's actually not true. Um, when I look at it's actually because I think I look at slightly different actors. I don't really look at much, as much at like, like there are formal leaders in places. I use the example of Europe a lot, where you actually have places where like green parties work with 
far-right um, neo-fascist or, or ethno-nationalist parties, right? Um, this has happened in a few places. Um, but I'm thinking more about folks like uh, Tillerson or right sort of apparatchniks, um, uh, what's it called, uh, CEOs, C-suite folks, uh, people who really are really are the power base, people who really are, um, what's the word? designing the uh, the policies and positions of the right in the modern world. And a lot of those folks are not necessarily climate deniers. Rex is just a really easy example because he just says this shit out loud, uh, right? And so he's like, no, 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 it's a real thing. We should be doing it. But like, and then he says something often very close to like something Bill Gates would say, right? They're considered different political parties and stuff. But he's like, it's going to be a technological thing. You know, we can roll it out slow. Three to four degrees change is probably okay. And that's what we'll do. And to me, this is a good encapsulation of uh, of just the sort of tip or like the most normal edge of what I'm calling right-wing climate realism, which is simply like a mode of engaging in climate adaptation and mitigation uh, measures that are slower, that are frankly going to... Uh, uh, not avoid the app, I mean, likely will avoid some of the like apocalyptic stuff that people have in their mind, which again, I, I actually try to push back hard in, on in the book, but instead uh, uh, would lock in tremendous misery for majorities, particularly in the global south, but also up here in wealthy countries, developed countries like the United States. So, um, right wing climate realism is in fact. Uh, you know, I make this point in the book a lot. Like, I don't always look for the climate policy. Sometimes I'll look at a border policy or a trade policy or an international, um, uh, like, a military policy and be like, this is a real climate policy. So when I see Europe, for example, with its intensification of patrolling uh, for uh, climate migrants, economic migrants, others in the Mediterranean, that's a climate policy to mm-hmm. me. Um, both the U.S. Uh, sorry, both the U.S. and EU uh, will use border states like uh, Mexico and Turkey, uh, or uh, near uh, Libya as well, other places, to like sort of be almost like a buffer. That to me, it seems like geopolitics. It seems like treaties. What the hell? That to me is a climate policy because it shows that these the people who are making these decisions are perfectly well aware that the world is changing. The world is changing rapidly. Mm-hmm. It's already happening. We're already feeling the effects. And thus, they need to be preparing for things like massive waves of migrants, for greater instability, for um, sort of uh, cordoning off safe zones. And, you know, as I talk about in the book, like sacrifice zones. That's a pretty horrifying vision, right? Um who is it from the UN? I think Antonio Gutierrez mm-hmm, uh, said right. something like called this kind of thing climate apartheid, which I think is pretty accurate. Um, I think other people would go further and call it eco-fascism. But well, however you want to phrase it, it's um, the generic definition I give in the book is uh, climate uh, politics, right? Uh, climate mitigation and adaptation efforts in tune with the preservation and even enhancement of existing uh, wealth and power. Right. So thank you. So this is, uh, again, as I noted, sort of a business as usual approach. It's typically accompanied by, you know, we're going to adapt or we're going to use some, there's going to be some yeah, engineering like gonna, solution. Exactly. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, it's, and, and as I, and I'm reading through my notes from the book, you'll say it's, it's essentially a self-interested logic taken to the extreme. Yes, that's right. I I call it self-interested self-preservation. Yeah, yeah, I I believe in self-preservation, but you know, at a certain point, it starts eating itself, like you know, sneaking its own tail. But but this sort of the other phrase, techno optimism. Beyond this, you say ultimately, it's functional climate denialism. Yes, Uh, when and this, in fact, uh, is uh, I think actually less true of. I mean, again. Uh, the kind of people I was just talking about, whether it be, you know, Tillerson, you know, part of the joke I make with Tillerson in the book is simply like, actually, it's not that special. Like he's actually just a kind of regular CEO guy. And uh, you might be personally very upset with him. uh, But like he, he, his like morality is not the issue. It's the system which has, which, you know, elevates and ensconces and where he is somewhat like have some kind of come to Jesus moment. Uh, I mean, he's retired now, I think, but mm-hmm. like when he was still in, in office or when he was CEO of Exxon, they would have just gotten rid of him and replaced him with someone else. Um, so it's not really about them being like good or evil people. Um, and a lot, when we get into, uh, Oh God, I'm so sorry. Can you just repeat the second half of that question? Cause I lost, I got lost in my Rex answer. No, no, we're still stay. We're, we're still with uh, right-wing climate realism, so the various okay. ways of explaining thereof, yes. Oh, yeah, great. Um, yes, I mean, so, like, you have those folks, and then you're getting into, and you've gotten to the, the techno-optimism stuff, so they often walk hand-in-hand, hand, and I'm not against technology. In fact, I discuss in, in the book, like, a host of technologies that seem to be working, so things like photovoltaics seem to be working very well. Um, the Chinese are constantly beating their targets on photovoltaic production and installation. And many people, myself included, think that probably the Chinese will peak emissions this year or next year, which is globally very important because that is still the center of economic production Mm -hmm. for most of the world. So some of the technologies are all bad, but, or like even remotely, um, but they are not like innocent things. And often, you know, even on the left, you know, I read this book very openly from a left-wing perspective, but I do hope it is sort of inviting and warm for maybe people who are don't have a strong ideology or maybe consider themselves sort of like ordinary liberals or something like that to be like, oh, I can see why this makes sense. Um, so there are technologies that definitely work, but there are tons of people across the political spectrum who are currently saying things like, oh, we absolutely need to be doing all in on carbon capture and storage right now, (laughs) right? We have to be all in on uh, uh, carbon dioxide removal right now. And what I find fascinating about a position like that is even the, the natural scientists and technologists who are most compelled by these technologies will not actually say, oh my God, that's the pivotal issue right now. Um, I can't remember if I quote David Ho in the book, but he's probably the most famous um, climate scientist who works on carbon, uh, sorry, uh, on, on carbon removal. Uh, it's complicated because CCS and carbon removal are actually two different things, mm-hmm. but whatever. On capture and removal. And he, even he, who is like a to- like total 
supporter of that technology and its development is like, yeah, doing it right now or saying the politics should hang on it right now is a, is a fool's errand, right? Because that gets in the way of decarbonization and of other measures that must be taken to get us to, to a point where those technologies might help out with a little mopping up. And even in this little example, which maybe seems arcane or something, you can see, again, the political cleavage between a, a sort of right and left approach. The right approach, right, says, well, yes, let's develop those technologies now because they're going to give an extension life, allow this to be a, a longer and slower transition that um, maintains the pace or even increases the pace of the global economy, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas people who are not very political but are thinking like, Big picture, I want to maximize outcomes for as many people as possible. We'll look at this and just be like, absolutely not. And that to me is one of, again, the core, excuse me, <laughs> out of breath for some reason. Um, that to me is the core, one of the core splits um, that you see in the sort of policy level. Um, the po political level is more complicated because that uh, is also then when we get into like, the social aspect and the um, different geographic aspects. Right. So per CCS, uh, it's been widely dismissed by engineers, Mark Jacobson at Stanford, amongst others, because it just allows for the continued emission of fossil fuels. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the classic uh, critique of CCS is that um, in the book, I actually decide to go into it uh, maybe further than, than, than that, um, simply because I, I really one of the things I was trying to aim at with this book is to really dig into the natural scientific literature and synthesize and incorporate it, you know, sometimes critically, but often just to sort of understand what was being told and sort of adjust within that. So it's not just that CCS extends a lifetime. It absolutely does. But that it's absolutely preposterous to say that it's use case, that we should like stop other things to wait for this, or that this is as important as those. That's completely irrational, and it flies in the face not only of sort of decarbonizing fast, but of achieving a whole host of connected uh, social and ecological issues are basically pushed to the side, and we end up debating these technologies that actually have a very small, even if important, potential um, to play in the world. The other example of this, I think you quoted Mark Jacobson, who's, a very, who's known very well as a proponent of 100% renewables. Right. But again, in the book, I love using examples of, especially from Asia, so I use a lot of China, a decent amount of other places too, but like of real world examples of countries that tried to do some of the tech solutions. And certain things work, right? So photovoltaic, um, wind, uh, battery storage, mechanical storage, all kinds of stuff has been very, very useful. And then a bunch of the things that are held up as the synoclonons, but they aren't, uh, things like nuclear, things like carbon capture, actually they found weren't helping at all. They weren't, in fact, in many studies, they found the carbon capture plant actually have a lifetime assessment worse than a regular-ass yeah. coal plant, which is fucking mind-boggling. So, I mean, it depends on what the application is, what the use is, all this kind of stuff. But the point I'm trying to sort of get at is when you sort of start digging into these things, you can see that even in some of these seemingly distant technical debates are actually deeply conflicting and competing political visions. Well, uh, speaking of 
politics sort of seeping in everything, the IPCC reports have been uh, evaluated or criticized rather for uh, with careful reading, not being completely uh, apolitical. Uh, I did appreciate your comments in the book about nuclear. You're not obviously sanguine about it for many reasons you enumerate. Part of this gets is also a side related conversation we won't get into, but a lot of your conversation or discussion is is sort of this global south versus uh, global north problem. But let's go to mm-hmm. the heart of the volume um, since this is a healthcare policy discussion. So I'm yeah, going I was going to be like, I actually had some health stuff right. in there. <laughs> so I'm going to skip chapter three or, or your, yeah, your chapter on yeah. climate lysenkoism. And, and I, I encourage the reader to actually get into that. Um, Lysenko yeah, was an interesting person. The tech, they'll find the tech debates in there alongside a lot of perhaps, you know, yeah, theoretical things okay. that are of interest to some and not others. <laughs> so let's go to chapter four. This is the exhausted of the earth chapter. So there's yes. a good deal of discussion on this. So I really want to get into, and feel free to be as expansive as you'd like, and that is sure thing. why and how uh, has uh, the politics of the climate crisis uh, uh, caused uh, this this exhaustion? And I, I will say, I appreciate your Marx quotation on this, robbing the worker as well as the soil, but you also had some very interesting and frightening Gallup data, international Gallup data, on the extent to which... Oh, yes. Um, I assume your listeners would be familiar with those surveys. Yeah. So in any event, uh, uh, again, exhaustion, fatigue, burnout, stress, depression, pain, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but how does this again manifest? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, you said like, how is this produced by climate politics? Right. Um, I'm a, I might rather phrase that ever so slightly differently, Please. although I, I, I actually do think that you're right. Um, and I would say this is what we have set up the world to produce, Right. Um, you know, and there's all these debates, uh, in different schools of thought about when you should date things and when did climate change start and what's the preconditions and what's all the, but if you like basically look at, again, a fairly, there's like a very, very, um, cautious and quite wonderful, uh, work from the late, uh, atmospheric chemist, Will Stefan, that I teach at the beginning of all my climate classes, called um, Trajectories of the Earth System, The Great Acceleration. He actually has a different paper called Trajectories of the Earth System, it doesn't matter. Um, and in that, basically, he's like, look, uh, in him and his, his whole team, it's not just him. And they're looking at all the different measures of climate change, um, whether it's like ocean acidification, emissions, whether it's biodiversity loss, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And they're saying like, look, these things have accelerated extraordinarily alongside what was in sort of economic thought called the great acceleration sort of in mirroring Polanyi's great transformation, meaning that basically around world war two. Yeah. And post that we see this tremendous increase in global economic activity and not just any economic activity, but in particular that they trace the like most minute and specific aspects unique to our contemporary version of capitalism. So things like the increased use of telecommunications networks, um, foreign direct investment, I mean, really deep in the weed stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And what they find is basically, I mean, look, correlation, not causation, your your listeners know this, right? But 
an extraordinary correlation to the point where they are comfortable concluding basically that I roughly paraphrase this, right? The present dominant socioeconomic system is based on um, high carbon growth and exploitative resource use, right? And they're basically like, you can't do it within that. And that's, I, I, the book, I make this joke a lot of many times, like that this is like careful, cautious sciences for capitalism as we know it can't really deliver the mitigation and adaptation scenario that most people want and most people need. Mm-hmm. And so what it delivers instead is what you were describing, right? And it runs faster, right? The world economy runs faster. Um, it is actually, you know, there's, no, there's all this talk of decoupling and absolute relative in material terms. It's actually accelerating. <laughs> I don't know like where these people get their numbers. Um, and, it's really frightening when you think about um, so, like some of the stats, like over 60% of uh, atmospheric carbon concentration is just in the past, like 30 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 30, 40, yeah. 1980 or so. Like, right. And so you're like, well, has like social outcome met? Again, I'll peg it to your listeners, right? Have like health outcomes always increased with these? Not always, right? Um, have other social welfare indicators increased with these? Not always, um, especially when you're like, look, think about that. And you're like, is life for most people, even in a rich com- country, that much better today? Or is it in fact that much more burdensome and exhausting? And I use exhaustion in this very, very capacious way, right? So I am talking about literal fatigue, like a bodily innervation, just being tired. Mm-hmm. I am talking about, um, I use a lot of global burden to disease estimates, right? So I am talking about mental illness and things like this, as well as physical, right, uh, injury. And also I get into dimensions that are outside of those realms. So things like just feeling that the pace of life is too quick. It's a very common uh, reflection you find from many people in many different places um, to feeling that even the like, aesthetic world, our cultural world is sort of running on empty, sort of just reproducing and recycling the same stuff. There is just a widespread sentiment that I call in the book often pre-political because it could go in many, many different directions, um, but a widespread sentiment or feeling or affect, as I put it there in a sort of very academic way, right? Um, that is sort of globally prevalent and very, very specific to the socio-ecological, I call I always say conjuncture, right? Which just is a fancy way of saying this moment in history, right? It's very specific to that, right? Because when I think about those charts, right? Those telecoms charts, the shipping charts, the, um, you know, the relative uh, decline of total factor productivity. This is a complicated economic mm-hmm. story, but whatever, right? What I see is more and more and more human and natural material being thrown to keep a system afloat that is barely even working in its own terms, right? In its own terms, we were promised that the way in which the global economy is being re- has been restructured would give everyone uh, prosperity, peace, plenty, and uh, freedom, right? Mm-hmm. And that's <laughs> instead, we see this explosion 
of uh, various diseases. We see this explosion of discourses around exhaustion. Um, again, your listeners, I know it's my own research, your listeners are almost certainly aware of the massive explosion of research into burnout because it affects medical professionals so much. Right. Um, so there, it's not just that we're researching these things for the first time. In fact, we've been studying exhaustion for even in the Western sort of scientific ways for about a century or more, in, or actually more than a century, late 19th century, basically. But we can see these things sort of being produced in and around all of the um, places, I call them zones, right, of extraction, exploitation, and exhaustion um, that are essentially defining the global economy as we know it today. And so, like, there's a reason. Like, the, what's the joke I say in the book? Uh, the our global econo- uh, ecological niche has a case of the Mondays, right? Um, mm-hmm. People are. I mean, I quote Fanny Lou Hamer on this, right? People are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I, I think politically, this is something that's very, um, you know, that quote is from the '60s, but this is something that I think is much more powerful today. And some of the languages that we have in politics that we've inherited largely from the 19th and previous centuries. So thank you for that. So you do uh, you do uh, discuss you term these these are um, service workers. Uh, I'll get to my point in a second. Socioeconomically sure. expendable that face permanent ecological adversity. Um, mm-hmm. I did an interview a few years ago with the University of Maryland professor, and as I noted. Exhaustion, fatigue, burnout, stress, depression. Interestingly, in the U.S., um, is the issue of, of chronic pain. Yes, uh, I include that. So, uh, yeah, I include that in my expanded exhaustion definition. But yes. So, uh, and then I, I appreciate your phrase. The, so, this is the privatization of stress is the phrase you use. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could take credit for that, but that is by the late great Mark Fisher. Mark Fisher. But, but from from this. From this pain perspective, this gets to um, an increasing percent of U.S. workers who have left the workforce. They're no longer looking for work, and they're obviously their 40 to 60-year-old age range. And this gets to – I'm sure you're aware of The Economist um, uh, at Princeton, uh, uh, Deaton, and uh, Case, you know, Deaths of the Volume, Deaths of of Despair. That was out – uh, I'm so sorry. Ago. Actually, I could not hear the uh, our our phone line cracked for a moment for a minute. No, I was, what was, I the was mentioning. Name of the text? I was mentioning uh, the Dean Case's uh, book, Deaths Deaton of Case. Deaths of Despair. Oh yes, yes, yes. You know, yes. Angus Deaton's the Nobel Prize economist, uh, the senior yeah, 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 economist. Yeah. No, now, now I can hear it. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so let's go. Um, so let's go to sort of solutions, alternative. Let's let's not leave this glass. Uh, half empty. Uh, so, so you talk about alternatively uh, left-wing climate realism defined. Uh, you give several examples. I was particularly interested, and in, I have to look this up myself, Cooperative Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, uh, yeah. They're a good example. If you're looking for a small-scale American example, they're, they're a, I mean, they're, they face a lot of uphill battle, but that, but that is a concrete municipalist um, uh political movement centered in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, like I said, they face a lot of uphill battles. This, their very own state like tries to undermine them all the time. Um, but they are trying to sort of build out uh, an ecologically sustainable and just sort of society for miniature. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I talk about things like that in the book, 
um, I'm, I'm like, those things are very, very important, but they, they need to either be grow, either grow or be connected. Um, and there's a lot of these movements, very large in the global South. And there are, there's a lot of more new movements and, and, and exciting stuff happening in the global North, but it's all just a little disconnected. And one of the reasons why I think the book and exhaustion, like, I don't know if I have all the answers. I'm totally willing to be wrong on many things. Uh, but one of the reasons I want to throw exhaustion out there and sort of start talking about the way climate changes politics is out of the hope, right, that this material can be a common language, can be a common way of, you know, I, t- I have those sort of two characters in, in the in the second chapter, right? There's this like, um, sort of middle class uh, uh, American Californian, right? She codes maybe. And mm-hmm. then there's like the person on her app, right? If she gets on her phone who like comes and cleans her house or takes care of her kids, right? Um, and I talk about how much they have in common actually, um, even though they may not speak the same language, they might literally have drastically different um, life experiences and stuff. But this sort of what I call matrix or whatever, this range of effects that you want, I want to call exhaustion, is uh, to me like the beginning point for a conversation between people who are theoretically very far apart, although frankly, in that case, they're literally in the same room sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Theoretically very far apart, but often are sort of thought to be um, completely at odds or with nothing in common. And that might have been true in some kind of horrifying way in which if you throw all of sort of thinking about humanity and justice out the window, that might have been true in some kind of rational actor way in like 1955, but it's not true in 2024. Um, in 2024, a lot of those those two people and like a whole, like I say, a majority of people in the United States, vast majorities in, in Southern countries, um, et cetera, et cetera, would all benefit from this more reasonable, slower, healthier, um, um, I call it, you know, I, I borrow a phrase from William Morris, like restful, epic of rest, a, a more sustainable way of doing things, which isn't even, as I say, plainly, right, as a, as a self-professed Marxist, right? I'm like, this is not communism. This is not, in fact, socialism. This is not the obliteration of private property, but it is a radical restructuring of the global economy that has tremendously broad appeal in this moment because very few people, I mean, again, think about those global burn disease estimates. What people want is to be healthy. What people want is to be rested. Um, you can read polls, and I include some of them at the end of the book, right? Even Americans uh, who like will have started redefining things like the American dream, not as I will own two, uh, what's it called? I will own a house, a car, and have 2.5 children, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Instead, people will list on surveys things like, I want to live near good schools. I want to live near a library. I want to live... Um, with a place with public transportation, you'll see a lot of this kind of stuff and realize, oh, this idea that all people want, that it's just like some sort of innate human acquisitive desire, right? Just to pile up all the stuff and yada, yada, yada. It just doesn't seem to be true. And the stuff that people really seem to want in this moment, which completely, I think, is pr- both produced and also addresses um, climatological issues is a again, a more restful, a more reasonable, and a more, what's the word? Uh, yes, a more restful and more reasonable uh, uh, 
sort of hemmed in. You know, I actually took that thing out of the book about like, is this socialism or is this capitalism? I'm just like, honestly, at this point, it doesn't even matter. Because right, right. like, yes, am I, do I think that we will still, I, in fact, I just said to someone else the other day, like we're talking on a short time scale here. We're talking five, 10, 15 year stuff, right? Maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit shorter for other things. So we are, we have to be playing a little bit within the lines of probably like, the European Union will still exist. Probably China will be the China, right? Probably the United States will be the United States, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's like not like we can just reinvent whole countries and, you know, whatever, all, all full, full stop. Um, but we have, uh, we know that we cannot wait or work on this timeline that is the timeline that is friendly to profitability. Um, I like to focus on profitability more than just pure economic growth, which just tends to be the, you know, the debate uh, in climate circles, um, simply because often it, they, we have let economic growth sort of colonize both social welfare measures and sort of obscure that we are really actually talking about usually profit margins and not just some kind of weird aggregate abstract. And so uh, we like... That world is very appealing to many people, uh, even to some uh, people who are outside of a traditional, say, working class or peasant or um, other sort of class and social position, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there are some, you know, bourgeois and there are some small, uh, you know, small farmers is a really good example here in the U.S. uh, who are very interested in these issues. uh, And it puts them at odds with the same companies in many places, the same firms, the same people um, that are causing such devastation in other parts of the world and even more horrific sort of direct effects in other parts of the world. So to me, it's like a really wonderful and hopeful like prism because like what could be more exciting for folks? I mean, in my mind, I don't give, I say this many times in the book, I don't, I don't have a blueprint. I can't just write out what the world should be like because like it's going to, that's going to emerge from what we all do in the present moment. But if we look at a bunch of things that we lost in this chase for sort of infinite growth, and I don't just mean this um, economically, I mean this culturally, I mean this in terms of yeah, everything you can imagine about the human experience, right? Um, often quite uh, extraordinary things and you can find these in different parts of the world. I talk about some things from Africa and the Middle East and Asia in the book. Like, were just sort of lost or abandoned or set aside because they didn't serve the goal of infinite profit, of infinitely increasing profitability or infinitely increasing growth. Um, it's sort of become a pithy but still true statement that, like, it is in fact impossible to have infinite growth on a finite world. Um, but what I would rephrase that to say is, profitability is not working in all of our interests. And in the places where maybe you could even say that, sure, all right, but th- like it, they are, it is in very small markets, whereas the very big stuff like power, transportation, uh, ag, uh, and, and many other giant sectors that are fundamental to human life are really the stuff we need to be focusing on com- almost completely restructuring. Uh, and I talk about some of the ways this can happen in the book, but I hope that when people are reading the book, you know, as they're reading it and taking it to maybe their friends or their activist circles or their families or any number of places, that they themselves will be adding in what they think that other side could be like. And 
all I really want to do is just point out to folks that they, right, this current way of doing things is exhausting. It's deadly. It's deeply harmful. Um, I talk a lot, actually, in the book about the pandemic and the way in which that is, in fact, a good sign that the event horizon of climate change was in the past. It, it's already here. The idea that it's a far-off thing, that's bullshit. The idea that it all happens all at once is bullshit. You can use whatever metaphor you like, the frog boiling, whatever. Um, right? It's more like a slow burn than it is the fire and brimstone of the sort of Bible uh, okay. way of thinking about, about the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. It's rather we are faced with a bitter political struggle for the possibility of a much better and very unanticipated life that is sustainable in multiple directions, right? Um, and, or we are locked into a world that is actually not only a further concentration of power and wealth, but one that locks out a lot of those, what I call quasi-utopian possibilities. Thank you. The, the Your last chapter, uh, and you just uh, suggested it, is our, the long now, I thought, was yeah. a useful phrase to understand and the point you just made, I will say that, uh, in, in my mind, this is, this defaults to sort of the, the common problem, which is the confusion over means and ends. Um, mm, that yes. we've confused, uh, profitability or we've defined them as both, uh, when they're not. And then I will say, we don't have time for this, but I have to say, because in DC, you get a lot of, you hear the word resilience ad nauseum. Oh, <laughs> and you do, I have to say, you do a great job. Of, oh, I'm uh, glad you. Uh, I, I was. I'm glad that you, in particular, because it is. It is somewhere I, I thought some healthcare folks might uh, have this, more yeah, time to talk people, for it. People who uh, parade or tout the benefit of building resilience. At one point, you just you know you use you just connect the the, the words. Resilience is exhausting. Um, yeah. <laughs> so with that, I mean, it, it, the joke. Someone else said this to me about my book. They were like, "It's like you're talking about someone getting punched in the gut." Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, you can get punched in the gut and be- get back up. But at some point, after like maybe the third or fourth yeah. time, you're like, maybe I should ask why this guy is punching me all the time. Right. The, the more complete, uh, and I appreciate this in my notes, resilience is a reactive management strategy and apology for the status, cro- status quo. In resilience, thinking disease and stress are omnipresent and unavoidable. Um, so in any yeah. event, uh, Ajay, we're, we're sadly at our time. Oh, okay. This book, we, I don't feel we even scratched the surface here. This <laughs> this book is is rich in content and analysis, and I strongly encourage, obviously, uh, listeners to pick up a copy. I will say too, you did provide a, a summary uh, at about I think it was about four thousand words in I believe it was published uh, in Grist. Oh. Just on the resilience yes, section. Sick and within, tired against resilience. Yeah, that, so that's an excerpt from the book that they put out in the Baffler recently. Yes. Oh, the Baffler. Excuse me. Thank you, Baffler. So that's a, that's an excellent overview, or rather, uh, 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 account of part of your discussion. So with that, yeah, Ajay, I do appreciate your time for discussing the book, and I wish you every success. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.